This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to our annual Pledge Drive program. It is an unavoidable fact of life that once a year we have to ask you, dear listener, to do your part to help keep this station on the air. We are, in fact, a community-based radio station, and we do absolutely depend upon your support. So for the first of several times, we'll be mentioning where you can go to do that, given that you are currently listening to us via the Internet. Your best bet would be to go to fundraiser.kdvs.org and make your contribution. Let us begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date is the 24th of April. It was on April 24th in 1915 that New Zealand and Australian troops land at Gallipoli for what would become a disastrous attempt to open up the Dardanelles Straits to the British Navy. The Allied casualties would amount to 300,000. This strategy was apparently the brainchild of Winston Churchill, whose career went into a bit of a tailspin. And it was on April 24th in 1925, in defiance of a Tennessee state law that forbid the teaching of evolutionary theory in public schools, teacher John Scopes conducted a lesson on the subject. The resulting Scopes monkey trial drew global attention and pitted legendary attorneys Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan as opponents. April 24th in 1953, Winston Churchill, the British leader who guided Great Britain and the Allies through the crisis of World War II, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, showing that little Gallipoli episode in the First World War had obviously not proven fatal politically. And it was on August 24th in 1970 that China launched its first space satellite, the Dongfang Hong, or The East is Red, also the name of a favorite old tune of the people, which the device broadcast from orbit. Not the catchiest tune you've ever heard, but we admit to not being aficionados of Chinese music. Our quote of the day is the opening sentence of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And yes, sad to note, Garcia Marquez passed away last week. And we are sad to note the passing of one of Latin America's uh, greatest authors, which I think may be a bit evident from this opening sentence, which was, many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Yeah, I thought it was quite a grabber. And evidently, I was not alone. Our quip of the day comes from Addison H. Halleck. And no, I've never heard of him either. But I do appreciate his quip, which is, before borrowing money from a friend, decide which you need more. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who noted last week, a Colorado company has introduced the first marijuana vending machine. As a result, the vending machines all around it are doing much better. And I think we'll throw in a part joke, part quip, coming from Billy Sunday, of all people. 
the noted evangelist preacher from the 1920s, said Billy Sunday, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. Our anecdote of the week comes from Discover Magazine, whose demise we apparently prematurely reported some years back. The current issue describes how scientists and government officials in French Polynesia were desperate, given the islands were being overrun with the glassy-winged sharpshooter insect. It was first detected in Tahiti, and the half-inch-long mottled brown leafhopper carried a plant disease-causing bacterium. The insect had spread to other islands in French Polynesia, and it was wreaking havoc on native crops and vegetation. At that point, they called in Mark Hoddle, director of the Center for Invasive Species Research at UC Riverside. In the magazine, Hoddle described how he went down to Tahiti and with much fanfare, brought out dozens of glass vials containing thousands of parasitic wasps, which are the sharpshooters' natural predators, which they had bred, quarantined, and observed in the lab for over the past year. Hoddle noted that the microscopic wasps looked like tiny specks of dust, but he was optimistic they could decimate the sharpshooter population. His research had also assured him that the wasp was too small to sting humans and would not create an unintentional problem in the island's natural ecosystem. He noted there was a ceremonial aspect of the day with the Minister of Agriculture making the first release. He uncorked a vial, tapped the side, and freed the first of more than 7,000 wasps. Hoddle noted this high number was probably overkill, and a few hundred may have sufficed. But he said he wanted to be sure they could overcome potential environmental barriers like the mild year-round climate. And apparently it all paid off. Four months later, the wasps had traveled more than five kilometers from their initial release site, and the sharpshooter populations were down dramatically in that same area. And apparently within six months, the sharpshooter population on the entire island of Tahiti had collapsed. A happy story about ecology in action. Our stat of the day is 12 years, which is the amount of prison time doled out to Robert Rizzo, former city manager of Bell, California. Rizzo was also ordered to repay the city $8.8 million. Speaking in his defense, Rizzo said, For the first 12 years, we ran a very good, tight ship. A good city. We didn't have any issues. Beginning in the 13th year, I breached the public's confidence. I'm very, very sorry for that. Yes, it turns out when he was forced to resign in 2010, Robert Rizzo's total compensation was $1.5 million a year, the highest municipal salary in California and likely the nation. He had a house in Huntington Beach and owned a ranch outside of Seattle where he kept a stable of racehorses. You know, a California politician named Jesse Unruh once said that money was the mother's milk of politics. And I have a very strong sneaking suspicion that money has an awful lot to do with some of the things going on. But of course, that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. We decided a few weeks back to, to include a good news section to most shows, and I think we'll do that today. And our good news is that 25 years after scientists first identified the hepatitis C virus, doctors are declaring victory over an infection that afflicts more than 3 million Americans and kills more of them than HIV. According to an article by Melissa Healy in the Los Angeles Times, in a series of clinical trial results, a new generation of antiviral medications was able to clear the liver-ravaging virus from virtually all patients' bloodstreams in as little as eight weeks. 
Even in patients with the most stubborn infections, the new drugs were capable of suppressing the virus completely at rates well over 90%. The treatments, however, do come with a steep price tag, more than $1,000 a pill. The math on this is a bit daunting. Widespread use of this new drug would uh, naturally come with a steep price, a 12-week regimen of sofosbuvir, which in fact is just one of the medications in a proposed hepatitis C cocktail, would cost $84,000. And yes, this of course means that insurers will probably limit their use to patients with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis of the liver, a group that represents about one-third of those infected. Anyway, costs aside, this is a wonderful tool to have in the tool chest, and I'm awfully glad to see it. Your love gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money. And now it's time for Year In and Year Out, what is one of our favorite portions of the program. The good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Brazil's soccer team after the coach of the country's national squad announced that his players could sleep with wives and girlfriends before World Cup matches this summer, so long as there are no possibly injurious, quote, acrobatics, unquote. Yay. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the First Amendment, or is it religious nuts, with news that Louisiana lawmakers are considering legislation that makes the Holy Bible the, quote, official state book, unquote. The legislation was opposed by some Democrats, not because it suggests the state's endorsement of one religion, <laughs> gee, do you think, but because it originally specified the King James Version, which some Christians do not use. Suggested State Representative Robert Billio, why not put all versions of the Bible? Mr. McMillan? And it was an ugly week last week, again, according to the week, for messing with Texas after Daniel Athens of El Paso was sentenced to 18 months in jail for urinating on the Alamo. He was also ordered to pay $4,000 to clean his pee off of the limestone fort. Well, considering that, in our opinion here at Radio Parallax, the whole Alamo saga represents... Uh, Something that happened to a bunch of cutthroats, near-do-wells, and slavery supporters. Now, this seems pretty. All right, this one's pretty cuckoo, too, I have to say. It was probably both a good and yet a bad week for the scientific method last week. After a Cornell University researcher set out to discover the worst places on the body to be stung by a bee. And yes, he systematically pressed the insects against his body parts. Said the researcher, man, I want to make this our quote of the year. If you're stung in the nose and penis, you're going to want more stings to the penis over the nose. Now we would note that Radio Parallax has always maintained the position that if you are near an angry swarm of bees, for God's sakes, keep your pants on. But apparently, even more importantly, protect your nose. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mr. Miller is advised to take note since this correspondent is in fact getting some bees two weeks from now. Moving right along. It was both a bad and ugly week, I would say, last week for libertarianism with the news that the federal government was forced to back down in a tense standoff against a Nevada rancher who, backed by a heavily armed militia, refused to recognize its authority over several acres of public land. Cliven Bundy has been at loggerheads with the Bureau of Land Management since 1993 when the agency revoked his grazing rights on land near Mesquite, Nevada, as part of a conservation effort. Despite losing his fight in federal courts, Bundy refused to remove his cattle. Last week, government agents seized about 400 head of his herd, but they were forced to release them after becoming surrounded by hundreds of heavily armed states' rights protesters who joined Bundy's range war. And I would advise you, dear listener, take a look at some of the photographs of this militia that turned up out in Nevada. It's pretty scary. Bundy claims the real issue was state sovereignty, not grazing rights. I don't recognize the United States government as even existing, he said. In some future show, we're going to have to address the issue of uh, welfare ranching. We saw a stat some years back saying that uh, the entire amount of rents that the federal government makes on grazing land amounts to something like $30 million dollars about what any self-respecting office building in Manhattan, I'm sure, generates per annum. And evidently, a lot of folks don't think they should pay anything. program frequently takes a look at history, politics, and current events. And uh, if we can find an area where all three converge, well, we might talk about it in the show. And I think that something I've been sitting on for a few months uh, uh, fulfills that criteria, which would be to look back 50 years at the legacy of Lyndon Baines Johnson, in particular, both the War on Poverty and the Civil Rights Act. The former was signed in January of 1964, the latter in July. Both of these pieces of legislation were basically run through Congress by, well, a man who was was probably the most influential and powerful senator in the history of that institution, who was taking advantage of the death of his predecessor, JFK, in November of 63 to weld together whatever political coalitions he needed to get things done. I've been sitting on a couple of pieces uh, since January that took a look back at the war on poverty. A piece by Annie Lowry in the New York Times was titled, No Win Yet in War on Poverty. To quote from her piece, To many Americans, the war on poverty declared 50 years ago by President Lyndon Baines Johnson has largely failed. The poverty rate has fallen only to 15% from 19% in two generations. And 46 million Americans live in households where the government considers their income scarcely adequate. 
But looked at it from a different way, the federal government has succeeded in preventing the poverty rate from climbing far higher. There is broad consensus that the social welfare programs created since the New Deal have hugely improved living conditions for low-income Americans. Writing on this subject in thedailybeast.com, Michael Tomaski said, Yes, poverty's not been erased, but government programs designed to ease human misery nevertheless have been a success, a wild success, by nearly every meaningful measure. Johnson's Great Society enabled a drop in infant mortality, brought health clinics to rural areas, improved neglected local schools, helped produce a rise in college completion rates, and put food in the mouths of tens of millions of hungry people. Sounding a sour note in this topic, the Wall Street Journal noted that Johnson's war on poverty turned millions of able-bodied, non-elderly Americans to being utterly dependent on public assistance, and said that by that standard, the war on poverty has been a catastrophe. The Civil Rights Act is also worthy of a few words here. Writing in The Economist magazine about a conference held at the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, the magazine said that the fact that the Civil Rights Act can now be the subject of a major conference is in itself a sign of how much the country has changed since its passage. In the early 1960s, opposition to racial equality was widespread, brutal, and sometimes lethal. It was also more or less mainstream political position at the time the law was passed, and for years thereafter, at least in parts of the country. Former President Jimmy Carter, who spoke on the first day of the summit, recalled that when he was elected governor of Georgia in 1970, segregation in public services, such as schools, was the norm, even though it was illegal. Even today, he continued, racial inequality can be seen in unemployment statistics and educational outcomes. Too many people, he warned, are at ease with the still existing disparity. But what strikes me the most about this look back 50 years is the fact that Johnson could get these remarkable pieces of legislation through Congress. In our current era of partisan gridlock, this looks just just that much more remarkable. The Dallas Morning News, in a look back at LBJ, said that Johnson was a political and legislative genius. In order to pass the Civil Rights Act, which legally banned racial segregation, he wooed and bullied Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans and dished out pork in return for votes. Imagine this. He got liberals and conservatives to work together on what was then a political third rail. Writing in Slate.com, John Dickerson said, This much is clear. We'll never see his likes again. In our hyper-partisan age, no president or congressional leader can muster the bipartisan support that gave rise to the Civil Rights Act. Wealthy donors and the party bases now demand ideological purity. And in today's saturated media environment, Johnson's payoffs and punishments would be exposed immediately and spark an uproar. LBJ was a man of his moment, and that moment has long since passed. Well, I hope John Dickerson's wrong about that. But I do know that LBJ himself said that when he became president, he had one year to get things done. Because in the country pulling together, in the shock of the death of his predecessor, he felt that he had a limited amount of time with which people would be willing to cooperate.
And I think at this time we'll take a moment to uh, hear from America's foremost political comic, somebody we are delighted to be able to bring you on a regular basis here on this station. You know who he is. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say we don't have enough stuff to worry about. Now we're running out of ways to kill people, legally. First, the maker of the go-to lethal injection drug, thiopental, stopped producing it. Then, states turned to a different drug called pentobarbital, but the Danish manufacturer didn't like being associated with executions, so they pulled the plug. Now the state's departments of killing are resorting to unreliable and possibly illegal sources, meaning we could be shooting people up with Drano-flavored jello soon. You know, these punishments are being carried out on behalf of we the people, so shouldn't we the people have a say in the process? Come on, man, it's the 21st century. Why not kill the condemned creatively? Film it for pay-per-view. Make some coin on the back end. There's tons of ways to end a person's life that would be a barrel of fun at the same time and eminently watchable. For instance, imagine the hilarity to be had if a convicted man were forced to spend an entire evening in the company of Joan Rivers. Or what if they were dispatched to be Chris Christie's pedicab driver, Vladimir Putin's food taster, Barack Obama's personal pollster. Work as the only salesman at a footlocker during the next re-release of Air Jordan Classics. An entire season on Dancing with the Stars as Chelsea Handler's partner. Spend a day in Times Square dressed in the Disney character costume of the evil bird from Aladdin. Got three words for you people. CSI Miami binge And finally... We could force the doomed to wear Google Glass into dive bars all over the Mission District of San Francisco. And the beauty of that one is, they function as their own cameraman. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Will Durst's performances, as his website points out, are made possible by the First Amendment. We're delighted that we've been able to bring Durst to... uh, our listenership for, I don't know, what has it been, six years now, Mr. McMillan? Something like that. And we are very much looking forward to the documentary, Three Still Standing, featuring our boy, prominent among uh, three San Francisco comics. And when that's out, I'm sure he'll be back to talk to us about it directly. This is our annual Pledge Drive program. Please take a moment to put this on pause and go over to fundraiser.kdbs.org and make a contribution, won't you? 